Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Very quickly, I just want to remind you that if you want to attend FT Alphaville's annual conference slash festival in London, Camp Alphaville, it's next week on July 1st, and you can attend as an Alpha Chat listener at a discount. Just go to ft.com forward slash finance festival and type in the code Secret Alpha Chat. That's all one word in caps, Secret Alpha Chat. And you can attend Camp Alphaville at a discount. That's it. That's all the housekeeping today. Let's get on with today's show. And I'm joined for this episode by Matt Klein. He's back. Matt, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Matt, I got to say, you're here in the studio. You're formally dressed. You're wearing a tie. You look very composed. You look not at all freaked out by everything that's happening in the world right now. I try to give that perception, yes. Okay. It's not the reality? You're just, you're full of turmoil internally. I like to think things will work out in the end, but uh, in the short term, who knows? Yeah. Okay. Great. I'm just a complete mess, as you'll realize as this podcast goes on. Uh, that being said, we have an amazing show today, uh, and I ask how you feel about things because we are going to talk about everything that's going wrong. We're going to do our mid-year update, okay? But first, we're going to talk to Alan Taylor. Alan is who again? Alan Taylor is a uh, professor of economics at the University of California, Davis, studying financial history. Okay, excellent. Let's get on with it. First up on the show, Matt and I are going to talk to Alan Taylor. He's got a new paper out titled Macro Financial History and the New Business Cycle Facts. It's all about the financialization of the economies of the developed world and how that has changed the relationship between credit and economic outcomes. So first of all, Alan, thanks for coming in to talk to us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Scott. You described this paper in the abstract as the product of a decade-long data collection effort. So let's start with the methodology. Uh, what did you guys look for, and how did you go about finding it? Well, the, the project started when Moritz, uh, my co-author Moritz Schulerich and I, were, were sitting around in London. We'd met a couple of years before, but it's in the middle of the crisis in early 2009. And as economic historians, we said, well, we should have something to say about this. And then we thought, okay, we'll write a paper, we'll just download the data as one does and get on with it, and it'll all be merry. We were interested in saying something about a credit boom and bust scenario based on historical evidence. And the problem we ran into is that the historical evidence wasn't there, or at least wasn't collected in a usable form, and in some cases didn't exist at all. So we had individual histories by many distinguished financial historians of particular countries, particular episodes, uh, but piecing them all together uh, in order to do something more formal, uh, a more statistical, a more analytic approach, 
was impossible at that point. The, the data didn't exist. So we said, okay, we either walk away and say nothing or we really get our hands dirty or send our research assistants to get their hands dirty, collecting the data from many disparate sources. So we, uh, we really have to lift our hats to people in central banks and treasuries, other economic historians around the world who, when we uh, emailed or sometimes uh, found them at bizarre times in their time zones, and we said, you know, where would we find the history of what your banking sector was up to in these decades, going back to 1870? Could you tell us where to find the balance sheets, where to find the history of lending and its volume and how it fluctuates. And we got enough help and did enough uh, detective work to eventually put together for the advanced economies a complete history of uh, the bank balance sheets and bank credit going back to 1870. So that was part one of the of the enterprise to assemble uh, that data set, which is a, a contribution in and of itself. Then you're going to ask me, what did we learn from that? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the part of the title of the paper is the new business cycle facts. Uh, so why don't you take us through uh, what they are, and then we'll dig in a bit. Okay, so this is the, the most recent paper, which just came out uh, in the NBR macro annual, which is which is forthcoming. The conference was in April, and it kind of summarizes uh, the the meta analysis uh, uh, of our work, if you like, which is to say that you know if you looked at the approach to uh, quantitative macroeconomics. In recent decades, uh, it would have largely ignored the financial system or perhaps modeled it in a very simple way and would perhaps have thought of you know, trying to understand the relationship between variables of interest like output, investment, the, the kind of ingredients and fluctuations that, that all macroeconomists study as somehow stable relationships and that you know, having examined the data and found those relationships, you'd then try to come up with a model uh, that would replicate that in a sensible way. What we've been arguing, and this paper is the culmination of that argument in a way, is to say, well, hold on, those relationships that may appear stable in a small sample, for example, if you were only looking at the United States during the Great Moderation, it might not be totally representative of the universe of experience. So this paper seeks to argue, following up on our earlier work, that economies in a state of high leverage operate very differently from economies in a state of low leverage. Generally, uh, fluctuations are uh, different. The correlation between different macroeconomic variables tends to ramp up. There tends to be more negative skewness. There are all kinds of parameters which turn out not to be fixed, but seem to vary uh, systematically with the size of uh, the banking sector, the leverage uh, relative to GDP. To be clear, when you say an economy that's operating with high leverage, you're referring specifically to private sector credit extended to Households extended to companies. Get a little more specific. What do you mean by that? So, uh, partly this measure uh, is admittedly uh, we're a prisoner of the historical experience. So, for the vast majority of countries still today, and for the vast majority of decades stretching back to the 19th century, most credit created in most of the world goes through the banking system, be it universal banking systems or other banking systems. Now, obviously, in the US, maybe in the UK, some other countries, we've seen the growth of shadow banking systems. We've seen active corporate bond markets and, and other ways to channel credit. But over uh, the historical experience we're looking at, it's mostly the banking channel. So that's been the focus of our work because that's what we can measure in this very long-run study for a large sample of events. And so it's private uh, bank credit creation going to the non-financial sector, which is the, the variable of interest here. So one of the things that's that's striking is in terms of the change of how banks have uh, lent 
over time that in basically I think it was since the 1970s, there's been sort of a phase shift in the composition of who the borrowers are. Maybe you can kind of explain that and why you think that what that happened. Yeah. So in in the paper, we, we refer to this as the financial hockey stick. And you can, well, guess where that idea came from. And it does refer to what seems to be, uh, you call it a phase shift, or if you like an inflection point where relative to GDP, the size of uh, bank credit really seems to go into liftoff. It had been relatively stable from 1870 to about 1970. It obviously went up in some exuberant periods like the 1920s. It tapered off quite a bit in the 30s and in World War II and then kind of bounced back. But then it didn't just bounce back. It took off on a very sharp uptrend. Uh, So that's, if you like, stylized fact number one uh, in this paper, which is the backdrop for thinking about uh, uh, the structural changes I just spoke about. But the other kind of uh, stylized fact, which which came along in our subsequent work, where we spent another two or three years uh, digging through the archives and the records, was to look at disaggregated credit, not just total credit. How much is going into loans backed by real estate Uh, basically mortgages, and how much is non-mortgage credit, if you like, the standard uh, bank loan to a commercial enterprise, to a business, to industry. And uh, the profound change there that we thought was interesting and is probably deserving uh, of more study is that, you know, 100 years ago, you know, your your grandfather's bank uh, was probably doing two-thirds or more of its lending to businesses and maybe one-third to mortgages. Uh, whereas today, uh, the proportions have pretty much reversed. So the the creation of credit today is largely uh, a business of lending to households. And that's probably lending against already existing housing stock, not against the creation uh, of new capital stock. So that, that seems like uh, an important difference to us, at least. Uh, I was intrigued by the relationship you found between the rise in credit uh, and volatility. I think most of us think of credit as something that exacerbates volatility or makes it, you know, um, a little wilder. Uh, it turns out that actually more credit leads to lower volatility through smaller shocks, but makes it much worse in bigger shocks. Take us through that. Yeah, so that's kind of in in statistical speak the difference between the second moment and the third moment. It's the difference between volatility and skewness, and so you know one can think of economic mechanisms whereby you know that how that might play out. One of the classic things we teach, uh, teach our students is that uh, credit or, or other means of using financial markets to provide insurance or to provide smoothing, that might be a good thing. That might help you achieve outcomes that are less volatile if you're a business or if you're a household. Um, on the other hand, if you have a very big financial system, which is uh, perhaps more uh, susceptible to big shocks like 2008, or even if it's not more susceptible to them, people, you know, just have more downside risk, then maybe those tail events, you know, the, the, the left tail comes more into play in a, in a more leveraged system. And that's the flavor of, of the result we were finding. So one of the things that, that ties into this, and, and I think it both relates both to the, the skewness question and also the question of why banks seem to have done this shift from lending to businesses to lending to households, is this idea you've explored of, of the leverage bubble and how it seems that in situations where there's a significant increase in borrowing to buy housing. The The risk is much higher than when there's, say, a boom in investment from you know, greater equity issuance or something like that. I mean, can you kind of walk through a little more you know, how, how you figure that and what maybe the sort of implications are for the, the, the findings about volatility and skew? 
Yeah, so this is a, an earlier paper called uh, Leverage Bubbles, which uh, appeared in the Journal of Monetary Economics uh, recently. And our concern there was we, we'd done a, a great deal of work collecting the data on credit, but had really not studied its interaction with asset prices, both equity prices and housing prices. And that seemed like a hole in the sense that the story of 2008, if we were going to put that in a historical context, was a story in many countries, not just of more credit, but also a big run-up in asset prices in, in the housing uh, market in particular. And so that begged the question, well, was that just a weird event in 2008, or is there something? Is there some systematic historical tendency for that type of event to occur? So again, it was back to the archives, this time to try to collect both uh, equity prices for all of these advanced economies back to the 19th century, and w with the help of one of Moritz's students uh, in uh, in Germany, uh, time series on housing prices, which I, I think is going to be really important and fills a big gap. Uh, and again, here there's a sense of, if you like, exploring a dusty corner of, of macro, which has maybe been a bit neglected. We tend to just study the economy. There's capital stock, there's labor. But the idea of housing as being potentially uh, a big driver, a big uh, user of investment capital, a big item on all of our balance sheets in terms of household wealth, it's always been sort of in the background or subsumed uh, in, in the rest of the model. But in light of 2008, one might want to re-examine those assumptions. So what did we find? We found that our earlier argument was if you enter a recession that's a normal recession, no financial crisis, you know, you lose a percent of GDP, things smooth out, growth resumes. In a financial crisis, we found that was systematically much worse. So we're looking over 200 episodes there. The depression or recession is very deep, lasts for about five years before you regain the earlier level of output. So the, the paper Leverage Bubbles said, okay, well, that's all very well as a first layer of description. What if you bring in the asset price perspective? And there, there's no agreed on sort of standard definition of a bubble, but we just looked for basically elevated asset prices relative to long-run trends and maybe very sharp run-ups and, and collapses. There are a number of criteria you could use just as an empiricist. And systematically, the relationship emerged that those recessions were worse after the borrowing periods coincided with also big run-up in the asset prices. But that fact was uh, even more alarming, if you like, in the case of housing price run-ups. So that's just like what the data say. The interpretation, uh, I think, could be, you know, if you look around the economy today, uh, what what can you do in terms of leverage? Well, you know, the, the average corporation or business m might be leveraged, you know, 50% or, you know, debt and equity or maybe a little higher. But of course, with housing, one can lever up more. Maybe one couldn't do that, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. And indeed, the results are weaker if you look in that earlier historical epoch. But we're now living in a world where uh, the most levered asset in the economy, and it's it's half of the total you know, wealth of most countries, uh, is the housing stock. And so that does seem to uh, leave in that sort of tail risk we spoke of earlier, uh, the possibility of quite sharp um, backtrack in the economy. Uh, if you get into that combination of over-leverage and a run-up in, in housing prices. And there's an interesting dimension there where our work kind of overlaps with, I, I think, some other very important research recently by uh, uh, authors um, Atif Mian and Amir Sufi, who, who if you like, their study uh, in House of Debt uh, was very much a cross-sectional study for the U.S., but kind of making a, a similar point, which is that the places where leverage ran up and house prices ran up were then kind of, you know, they were left with the overhang and systematically, 
you know, economic outcomes there were much worse in the downturn. If you like, we're, we're saying, well, that's not just a fact within the US at one point in time. It's a fact that's, that spreads over most of modern macroeconomic financial history in the advanced economies. So uh, that puts even more weight on it, uh, in my view. With respect to financialization, you also found that the behavior of uh, countries throughout the developed world all started to become kind of synchronized, that it was similar throughout a number of different countries. Uh, what do we have to know about that? I think, I mean, there's a, a kind of stylized fact among uh, economic historians and international economists that we, we're now in a more financially globalized age, perhaps comparable to or even exceeding in its uh, integration what we saw 100 years ago in that first age of globalization before World War One. So it may be no surprise that international co-movements uh, have gotten much stronger over time. And, you know, this this work and, and the data sets we've been preparing uh, enable us to go into that in maybe more granular detail. But I don't think we're finding anything that contradicts, you know, that, that earlier take. Do you describe the findings uh, in this paper and of your work in general as Minskyite? Well, I, I, or Minsky-ish. Or, Minsky-ish. Or, or, I don't, I don't know, know what the right word the, is there. Yeah. Yes, I don't know what the collective noun is either. Uh, but a, Minsky-like. A, a crash of Minsky's. <laughs> I think it's it's certainly sympathetic to to that view. I mean, you know, uh, when you're around when you're around Minskyans, they'll say oh, that your work's very Minskyan, and when you're around Keynesians, they'll say it's very Keynesian, and you know, then you bump into an Austrian, and they'll say oh, you're very Austrian. So, I, I guess it, it pleases everybody, or possibly nobody, but we'll we'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> Uh, Alan Taylor, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Uh, before we let you go, uh, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? Well, well, thank you, uh, uh, Matt and Carter, for the invitation. I, I was thinking about that, that since this podcast is going to be broadcast on on, on Brexit weekend. Indeed. Uh, one of the stylized facts of, of economic and, and political history is, of course, that after financial crises, there's often great political turmoil, maybe with a lag, but uh, there's been a rise in political uh, protest and maybe in uh, in votes for extreme parties and general kind of, you know, more, more fractious and contentious arguments in the political sphere. But for me, it's also interesting that uh, those events in terms of intellectual history often lead to disruptions in the intellectual sphere and our, our understanding of events. So my, my recommendations of, of recent books to read, uh, I think, uh, embody that. So I, I've been looking at uh, Adair Turner's book, Between the Debt and the Devil, um, and uh, Mervyn King's new book, uh, The End of Alchemy. And of course, it's, it's right up my alley, but it sort of says, you know, those books couldn't be written 10 years ago before the crisis. Uh, but we learned through this event how little we knew. And now we're uh, with a delay having to uh, explore uh, new ideas and, and new approaches to policy, but also new approaches to economic research. And, um, you know, uh, it's sorry that sad in a way that we had to go through that to, to reach this understanding, but hopefully it'll stand us in, in better stead for the future. Sure. We should clarify that we're taping this on a Tuesday before the vote. And the reason we're referring to it as Brexit weekend, I think, is just because the Leave campaigners have a better portmanteau, Right. The Remain guys don't have something as catchy as Brexit. Bermain doesn't quite cover it, does it? No, no, it doesn't. Okay. It's a good try. <laughs> Alan, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Okay, and we are joined for this segment 
by Amelia Mahasek. Amelia, welcome back. Thank you, Cardiff. It's good to be here. I am here to uh, tear apart all your arguments as usual. I'm, I can't <laughs> wait. It's always such a pleasure to have my arguments torn apart by you. No, actually, more seriously, you are here uh, to remind us why we should all be terrified of the future. Um, I like to think I'm an optimist, but yeah, okay. We're going to hell in a handcart. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Each of the three of us has chosen uh, one thing about the first half of the year uh, that really struck us. We're going to talk about uh, the importance of each, uh, and then we're going to sort of bat around some ideas uh, about what might come next in the second half of the year. I should note very quickly that we are recording this on Tuesday, and obviously we don't know how the Brexit vote is going to go down on Thursday. And by the time our listeners hear it, it's at least, at a minimum, at the earliest, Friday morning. So either... We have Brexit and the world is collapsing and you don't care what we say anyways, or life is back to normal and the UK will remain in the EU. And that's wonderful because now you can listen to the rest of this awesome podcast and be interested. Matt, you ready? You ready for this? Yeah. Okay. uh, You go first. What is the one thing about the first half of the year uh, that struck you and that you want to talk about? So sticking very much to my uh, beat as someone looking at central banking, but the the change in perception at the Fed for what they thought would be appropriate for the U.S. economy between end of last year and basically last week or two weeks ago when they uh, released their most recent set of projections. They at the beginning of 2016, they thought they were going to be raising interest rates four times. They did raise rates in December. Right. They had just raised rates and they thought they would raise interest rates the median expectation was four times. So some people thought it'd be even more. Now, the median expectation is two times over the course of all of 2016, which even then is looking relatively less likely. And it's not as if that they're postponing you know, further increases into the future. It's just that there's going to be a much shallower path of increase uh, than they'd been previously expecting. The reason this is significant is because it basically means that they think that much lower interest rates are necessary to generate the same relatively mediocre outcomes of growth and inflation uh, that they are trying to target, which suggests a lot of underlying either weakness in the financial system or fragility in the global economy or something. And kind of also the one implication I think going forward is if you know a couple of years from now the economy weakens and they need to respond, they're going to have a very little room to be easing if the most they think they're going to be tightening is, you know, a couple of percentage points. They're yeah, just really closer to the zero bound. That's right. There's not a lot. There's not a lot of headroom. The interesting thing here is that we're not exactly sure what the Fed thinks has changed so fundamentally. We know that the relationship between how it expects to conduct monetary policy and the real economy has changed. Its perception of that relationship has changed. It's not clear if it's because of underlying fundamental structural factors. It's not clear if it's because of secular stagnation, if it's starting to buy into that theory. It's not clear if some of this is just still the lingering effects of the financial crisis. We just don't know. Right. So are we saying that stimulus is only a temporary prop and it just covers over the the, the problems underneath and, you, and then and to your structural point? I don't know if it's if it's that it's covering up the problems underneath. So much is that it's necessary because the economy is not expected to be as potent as we once thought it was going to be. Yeah, basically, like this is, could be almost as good as it's going to get, and the the anticipated need to to tap the uh, virtual brakes on the economy might not be very strong if the economy is not going to be going any faster than it already is. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know, that, like I don't know what it would be covering up, but I have a feeling that this is a good place to transition into Amelia's 
well trend trend of the half year <laughs> well my, I, my sort of theory is that um, economics obviously underpins everything and I feel that the rise of populism currently is underpinned by income inequality income inequality yeah and I and I wonder please discuss whether income inequality has been also heightened by policies by central banks that have driven up asset prices and therefore made the rich richer and the asset poor poorer. So, you know, they did it to save the world, but ultimately stored up a lot of problems for down the track. So it, it, everything, all of the politics of the moment seems to me to be feeding on, because I believe it all is rooted in economics. And when people are feeling, you know, reasonably happy, you don't have this sort of rise of nationalism and populism. You, you, you know, and on the face of it, we've got not bad employment statistics, you know, it's not terrible out in the streets, but we have this fundamental income inequality problem. Let me let me respond uh, by sticking with the Fed for a second and not mm -hmm. talking about the ECB um, or other central banks. Because to me, the answer to that first question of whether or not the Fed's easing policies exacerbated inequality uh, is no, it didn't, right? So a lot of times when people think about rising asset prices, they primarily think of the stock market. They think of financial assets where most of those are, in fact, owned by people who are upper middle class or rich people, right? But property, roughly- Property assets. And property assets. But here's the thing. The middle class in particular is way more heavily levered to property assets than rich people are. And so when the Fed takes easing policies that jack up house prices as it has, proportionally, it's people in the middle class who benefit the most, right, from that specific effect. And so in terms of exacerbating inequality, I'd say the answer is no. And there's an economist named Ed Wolf who studied this pretty closely, and he arrives at the same conclusion. That doesn't mean that income inequality has gotten better. It hasn't. But I think it's for other reasons. I think that's still a more structural problem. Uh, either it's globalization or technology or something else a little more mysterious. But I don't think it's because of the Fed. But if you had assets that you lost during the crisis because actually your income didn't sustain the ownership of those assets, then you have dropped out of asset ownership and you will never be able to climb your way back up again. And that did happen to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But then we started talking about wealth inequality, which is somewhat different. So sure. something something we do know that happened uh, also is that a lot of people, uh, especially in the middle class uh, and lower income people, lost a lot of wealth through the just a straightforward dissaving trend. Right? They were spending down a lot of the assets they had, uh, and that included some of their retirement assets, which is a true tragedy. Um, so in terms of wealth inequality, it spiked in the immediate aftermath of the crisis because uh, the collapse in the housing market hit people in the middle class more than it hit rich people who own most of their housing assets or real estate assets, right? But it didn't shrink in the, in the subsequent few years, uh, again, in part because a lot of middle class people ended up spending more than they saved. For those who lost their jobs, though, and couldn't pay a mortgage. Right. right. That's yes. I mean, there's, there's, I think yes. more than 6 million people lost their homes in foreclosure. And so mm. obviously they're not benefiting from higher house prices. They're actually on the losing side if they're renting and those higher prices are showing up in right. rents. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated picture. You can go, especially if we're looking on just the income side, there's also the tricky question of if income inequality among people with jobs can go up, but more people are having jobs because the economy is doing somewhat better, 
how would you i mean that that you could imagine both of those things being true mm-hmm. uh, i'm not saying that's necessarily what happened but it, it could have been something like that um and it's it's sort of tough to measure counterfactual i mean a lot of studies have looked at both income and wealth inequality uh and the relationship between monetary policy and one of the situations people say oh in a, wealth inequality fell a lot during the great depression that wasn't necessarily, a, you know, I mean, yes, inequality went down, but that, I mean, it wasn't really for a good reason. It's just because rich people lost everything and people who didn't have anything still had nothing. So that relative to that might be uh, preferable. But, but this also brings up one other issue, which is that income inequality itself can be in some cases way too broad a measure, right? So if you're looking at one specific subset of people who lost a lot in the crisis, the people who lost their homes and lost their jobs, right? It is a uniquely bad tragedy for them, right? And they haven't recovered. But the numbers might not necessarily show it if enough other middle class people did recover enough to cover up the impact of that on this smaller subset of people. It doesn't sort of diminish the horribleness of what they went through, right? If we believe some of these issues, whether it's wealth inequality or income inequality, have fed the rise of populism, do we then think that the rise of racism is associated with that. Yeah. I mean, and thank you for uh, helping me segue into my big event of the first half year, which is uh, the rise of this combination of, I guess, what you might call ethno-nationalism and just more general populist sentiment all throughout the developed world. I I don't know uh, is the answer to that question, Amelia. Uh, That's a really hard thing to study, especially given how quickly it's happened just the last couple of years. But yeah, I'm I'm disturbed in particular by the very loud shrieks of people complaining about the impact of immigration in particular, right? I mean, this has been a really disturbing trend. Uh, I am a first-generation American-born citizen, right? My parents were both born in Cuba. So I guess I have a, a personal attachment to this issue, but it's been kind of an awful thing to see immigration over time is generally a wonderful thing. It's been especially wonderful for the U.S. I understand some of the worries that low-skilled immigration in particular might take some jobs or might depress wages. As a matter of fact, the research on that doesn't show that they do depress wages over time. But I can see how a big shock of immigration combined with a weak economy might lead to a rise in sentiment that has people worried about about immigration. But I, I am stunned by how aggressive and how grotesque and how ugly these voices have been, right? And it's not just happening in the U.S. I think a big component of Brexit is about immigrants, right? I think you're seeing it all across the EU. I'm a first-generation Australian. My parents were post-war migrants from Ukraine and Greece. It's the same there. Yeah, and I would ne- I would note that this is an economic issue that's It's not just an economic issue of outcomes where immigration over time tends to be good for an economy, and I truly believe that. It's also uh, an economic issue in that people are worried about what the immediate impact is going to be of immigrants on their jobs for the next like two years or something like that. That if, If the economy is weak, then... I think you've seen that this is enough to change people's minds, right? And they start to gain. And I, I'm, I'm shocked by how much momentum this sort of uglier sentiment has received or has achieved in the first half of the year, right? It's been really bad. And Yellen's testimony earlier this week, actually it was quite dull testimony. And none of these really critical issues are things that she's being questioned about, whether it's, you know, not that she has to answer for the rise of populism or racism or Mm -hmm. anti-migrant feeling to be more polite about it. 
But it does strike me that there are all of these deep, sort of very fundamental issues that go back to how they how how they how policy is being shaped that are not at the forefront of what politicians are talking about, unless you're Donald Trump, yeah, or Bernie Sanders. Right. It's a tricky question for for her or other central bankers too, because I mean, I suspect if you were to ask them off the record, actually, these questions have been raised not that specifically, but about inequality, for example, and they generally say something along the lines of. Well, we are not trying to do that, given what else is going on. You know, if our policies sometimes have these other effects, we, you know, that's regrettable. But those could be offset in other ways. So, for example, like if if you really think the problem is you're having too much reward for people, rich people own stocks or things like that, well, you know, conceivably, if you had a higher capital gains tax, you'd manage to and then use that money to give it to people who are poor. Like that would naturally offset um, that flow. Uh, if you thought that were you know kind of a real direct consequence, so. I mean, you can you, one can reasonably criticize central banks for doing certain behaviors, but at the same time, it's important, I think, to see it in part of a broader system. And politicians, of course, are often inclined to obscure that and say it's not their fault; it's someone else's. But because it's dangerous for them to talk about it, right? Right? They can talk about it within the context of how inequality might affect overall economic growth. It's dangerous for them to start talking about what politicians should worry about and how should how they should right. react to it. Because then you start getting into issues of whether or not the Fed is truly independent. And right now, the last thing the Fed needs and the ECB and other central banks need is more people doubting whether or not they should be truly independent. In other words, I think the central bank chair is perfectly uh, justified in saying right back to the politicians, you guys should be doing a better job of figuring this stuff out instead of asking me. I'm just the monetary policy person. I'm I'm trying to stay within my lane. If you're asking me to solve that, it's because you're not handling your own business. She has backed off on the um, some of the rhetoric about asset bubbles, which mm-hmm. was last year's rhetoric, right? When there was a sort of well, concern. Yes, yeah. partly because some of those prices went down a bit, but, which, <laughs> right. which well, helps a but, little. But then you know, the share market's still sure. at an all-time so high. So I, I guess you know, related to that, I mean, central bankers in both Canada and Australia have actually been more explicit in saying they would prefer a situation where the governments were spending more taxing less, and then the central banks would have relatively higher interest rates because they think that the combination of what's currently happening where where the governments are focused on cutting their deficits and central banks are cutting rates can lead to a lot of problems, both in terms of financial instability and inequality and things like that. And they've actually been more explicit in that regard. You haven't seen that really in the ECB. They have a lot of other situations, but you haven't seen that in the US. But, but in Canada and Australia, that has come up. But no steps being taken to... Uh, well, they can't do anything by themselves. To, that? Mm. I mean, they have they have the, the law the law to you know keep inflation on target and well, Canada's got an opportunity now. Australia's coming up for elections, so but perhaps these will become issues. On the plus side, the Cleveland Cavaliers are NBA champions, and Cleveland now has uh, an NBA title for the first time in like or it has a major sports yeah. title for the first time in like a half century. Yeah. So that's a good thing that happened. Yeah. The reinvigoration <laughs> of the Rust Belt, <laughs> right? The reinvigoration of the Rust Belt. <laughs> Uh, Millie Mahasek, uh, thanks for coming back. It's been fun. Well, we're Would not you done ask with you me yet. Back again? No, of course <laughs> we're not done with you yet. Uh, we need to do uh, all three of our long form recommendations. Uh, you get to go first. Oh, long form recommendation of the week. Perhaps you should go first. I'll okay, have to think about it. Okay, uh, Matt, you get to go. First. <laughs> Someone has. Yeah, all right. It was earlier this week. There was a really interesting article about gun control in the magazine N Plus One, and the basic thesis, which I thought was very interesting, is that there's a most of the debate in the U.S. is concentrated on a relatively small sample of what 
what guns actually affect people that, you know, people talk about like an assault weapons ban, for example. So-called assault weapons are used in basically, I think the article is saying about 2% of all gun deaths. Most uh, guns that kill people are much more conventional uh, handguns. It's not mass shootings that that frighten, uh, you know, white suburban parents. Uh, it's mostly inner city crime. And the basic thesis of the article is that you need there the attitudes of different populations for gun control have changed pretty radically over time. There's a strong commercial element. Actually, one of the big proponents of gun control in the 1960s were whites who were threatened by blacks or perceived themselves to be threatened by blacks rather than sort of the now the narrative is, oh, it's, you know, the, the same population, similar population are set now among the mo- biggest defenders of, of gun rights. So there's, it's, it's an interesting historical look um, about what are sort of the more practical things that can be done to reduce the body count and um, how the current debate often misses that. Good one. And I can see that the gears are still churning inside Amelia's mind. So I'll go next. How about that? I'm going to recommend uh, the Marketplace Weekend Podcast. It's also a radio show, but uh, you can get it in podcast form. And most recently, the host, Lizzie O'Leary, did a really nice interview with Nariana Kocher Lakota, the former president of the Minneapolis Fed. Uh, and it's a discussion of what it means to change your mind as a public official while still in that same role. Uh, I thought it was a really interesting discussion about how he processes information and what led him to shift from being a very hawkish member of the Fed to a very dovish one. Again, that's Marketplace Weekend Podcast. Emilia, time is up. Interpol Confidential, I've been reading. It Interpol is, Confidential? It, yeah. Interpol, like the international police? Yes. So the former communications director of Interpol has written a novel, uh, which seems to me to be highly rooted in reality about the workings of Interpol. And, you know, it's a narrative of, of the craziness that goes on inside the agency, uh, you know, things that you wouldn't dream to read about the Interpol chief's wife brings a gun into the headquarters and the and he has to go down and rescue her. All these things which are supposed to be fictional but I think Where are is very Interpol much headquartered? in Lyon in France. And who's nominally in charge of Interpol? Well they have a rotating secretary general who's elected much the same as for the UN or that kind of a position. It was previously uh, Ron Noble uh, who's an American. They choose a different person it's a, there's a lot of politics and lobbying that goes into the role. So it's a f- fa- work of fiction, but it's fascinating to read. It, 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 unfortunately, it makes you think, oh, my God, these people are in charge of whether the terrorists are caught. <laughs> but um, it's a very pacey read. I still associate Interpol with Inspector Gadget. <laughs> See, I associate it with a ninja Which they assassin, probably don't like very much. There's some similarities. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. That is the end of the show. But by the way, listeners, you can get in touch with us and tell us what you thought went wrong in the first half of the year. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. number. For those of you abroad, the country code is plus one. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com. On Twitter, I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Matt is at M underscore C underscore Klein. No thanks for making that so complicated, Matt. Amelia, where are you on Twitter? At Amelia.com, D-O-T-C-O-M. So you spell out the dot com, at Amelia.com. It's me. Okay, Because I'm in charge of dot com for okay. the F-T. <laughs> Seriously, you guys are both making this as hard as possible just to close out the show. A lot went wrong in the first half of the year. I'll tell you what went totally right was that we get to work 
with Amy Keene. She's amazing. She produces and edits this podcast. Thanks, Amy, for everything. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.